You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, do you know what happened on November 3rd in 1957? Someone died? Yes, someone did die. Laika, L-A-I-K-A, died. Do you know who that is? Or was? Died of Moida. The dog, the Russian dog? Yes, the that's capital. right. Yeah, that's yeah. Went, right. Went to orbit. Wow, Sputnik Steve. 2 was launched with the dog on board yeah. and, uh, and died in orbit. Right. Well, how did but he die? Burned up on reentry, right? Aww. Was that the first animal in orbit? That's right. First animal in orbit. And the yes. first animal died in orbit. That's, that really That's is right. sad. And, uh, the, uh, P- and PETA had some choice words for the Soviet Union. But then the Soviets actually lost a person on reentry, right? So Sputnik 2 on this day in history. Sputnik 2? Is that how they referred to it? That's what it says here. Sputnik 2. That dog remained in orbit for 162 days. I don't think it survived mm-hmm. that duration of time in space. Well, well, died while in orbit. 162 days. Well, Rebecca, it's talking about animals. You're going to tell us about the psychic cat. Apparently, the psychic cat is psychic. Yes, there's a new psychic cat in town. Mm. Um, I know how much our audience loves paranormal animals. We've spoken in the past about Oscar the Death Cat, Charlie the Autistic Spaniel, Paul the Psychic Octopus, and now we have Roxy the... Uh, psychic cat and the flying Ro- spaghetti monster don't forget that one not technically an animal oh. actually that's a that's, that's actually a wheat a based uh <laughs> yeah, organism carbohydrate um roxy however is a siamese cat that is owned by holly willoughby who is a morning television host she does like you know kind of like good morning america there's a uh, a show here in england called this morning and uh, Willoughby had a pet psychic on back in April. Um, the psychic was named Joanne Hall. And Joanne read Roxy's mind, apparently. And Roxy informed Joanne that Holly, Roxy's owner, would be pregnant with a boy shortly. And then Joanne explained that animals can, in fact, predict what is going to happen. So in order for you to believe that this story is true, you have to not only believe that a human can communicate psychically with an animal, but also that an animal can uh, see into the future, um, you know, into situations involving the animal's owner's womb. I suppose. Um, so a bit creepy, but there you have it. Uh, so that was back in April and just the other day, uh, two days ago, as of this recording, Holly Willoughby announced that she is in fact pregnant. Uh, and the psychic is, of course, claiming this one as a giant win. I, I thought it was quite interesting. They don't know whether it, the baby's a boy or a girl just yet. So... We don't know how close the psychic got it, but as is, you know, that's sort of impressive, I suppose. If you didn't know that uh, several days prior to the pet psychic going on Hollow Willoughby's show, it was all over the gossip magazines 
that Holly Willoughby and her husband desperately wanted another child. They had a a boy last year, and they made it quite public that they were hoping to have several more kids in quick succession, and there was news about how she was worried about the job getting in the way, and maybe she wouldn't be able to have kids right away, or more kids, I should say, right away, but that she was obviously really interested in trying for another child. So that hit the papers a few days prior to the pet psychic going on. So you could believe that humans can talk to animals and animals can see into the future. Or you could believe that a human can read a gossip magazine Hmm. and make the obvious guess that this woman is trying to have a baby and mention it on TV. And you know what? If Holly Willoughby never got pregnant again, nobody would ever remember that this pet psychic had ever said anything about it. But she hit the jackpot because Holly Willoughby did, in fact, get pregnant as she so desperately wanted. And the pet psychic is probably going to get a lot of income from it. You don't even need the gossip column. A 29-year-old married woman with one child, what's the odds that they're going to have another child over the next couple of years? Yeah, but just the fact that she's like... Publicly out there saying that she wants an entire well, that's the litter of the cake, babies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's it a high probability hit mess. either way. Yeah. And also, yeah. guys, why should we assume that it wasn't staged? Or, or staged? Just, you know, well, staged meaning they could have been talking about it. There could have been information being passed that we don't know about. We're only getting the, the skin of the apple of the story here. Yeah, but Jay's right. It's possible that that uh, Joanne Hull, you know, in the green room or whatever, heard uh, Holly Willoughby talking about the fact that they're trying to get pregnant. Whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that piece, that bit of information could have gotten yeah. to the alleged of course, psychic. Yeah. yeah. And I should also mention that the psychic is Joanne Hall. Um, yeah. She she did read several other pets in that same show, and since you know, since the one thing came true, we can look forward to these other things coming true. Um, she spoke to a parrot called Percy, who told her he wanted to change his name to Rupert. And he wanted a cracker. <laughs> she spoke to a tortoise named Horatio, who shared his love of climbing over shoes. Right. So I'm sure that, you know, now that this great talent has been revealed to the world in the form of Joanne Hall, pet psychic, I, I like we can expect over. many more important revelations. I mean, Evan, how, how sad is it that this creature... This incredibly long-lived creature, the tortoise, his whole bit, his whole thing in life is to crawl over shoes. Yeah. Yeah. He also likes sunsets and short walks. And short walks. On the beach. Like and holding claws. Slowly. Nibbling lettuce. And pina coladas. All right. Bob, tell us about the 100-year Starship project. This one no, I was kind of interesting. Last week, Pete... Warden, who was the director of NASA's Ames Research Center, created some excitement with what seemed uh, like an unplanned announcement uh, to me of a, of a joint project between NASA and our buddies at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. The study is called the 100-Year Starship. Uh, Warden announced this at a, at a conference sponsored by the Long Now Foundation, uh, in which he said, we just started a project with DARPA. It's called the 100-Year Starship. The idea is that we're going to try to set up many grants and set up a program that will begin to invest in the technologies that get us in 100 years a starship. We're hoping to inveigle certain billionaires to form a 100-year starship fund. Inveigle, good word, by the way. Bob, Bob, why didn't they call it the Century Starship Project? Yeah, that would, have, that, that would have sounded better. I, think, I don't think they had enough meetings on what to call this thing. Yeah. yeah. 
Paul Aramenko is a representative from, uh, from DARPA. He also chimed in on this, and he's a coordinator for the study, actually. He said the 100-year Starship study is about more than building a spacecraft or any one specific technology. We endeavor to excite several generations to commit to research and development of breakthrough technologies and cross-cutting innovations across a myriad of disciplines such as physics, mathematics, biology, economics, psychological, social, political, and cultural sciences, as well as a full range of engineering disciplines um, to advance the goal of long-distance space travel. So that so this 100-year Starship doohickey study, it's really, it's not actually about building a Starship. It, the idea is that they're going to try to put in place some type of enduring organization that does two things, as far as I can tell, raise money for this research and entice generations of researchers uh, to work on these types of projects. And I, I've got no problem with that. That's, that's great. Now, as cool and as forward-thinking as this might appear, don't forget DARPA, it's really an arm of the Department of Defense for the United States. So, so obviously, they're, they're expecting some near, you know, nearer-term payoffs in areas like you know, propulsion, energy storage. Blowing stuff up. Yeah, biology, so, life Bob, support. As they go, as they go, they're going to take the technologies that they're they're learning and that they're paying for, and they're going to apply them to other things. Absolutely, I, I think one of the one of the draws here is that they're actually going to try and pull some intelligence capital from some from private industry, which I don't think uh, NASA or DARPA do very often. So I can't help but thinking, you know, what kind of form might these technologies take? You know, we're talking about many decades of, of research here, so there's always a possibility of something totally unexpected being developed, right? But, you know, just don't expect anything silly like folding space-time, you know, so that you can get from point A to point B really fast, because that's never, that's, stuff like that's really never going to happen. It's just really not even feasible. Uh, but still, we, there's a century, right, for them to, to really have this big, grand idea come to fruition. You know, you put some super Superintelligent AI on the job, and who knows, you know, what kind of exotic physics principles may reveal themselves. But there, but there are certain things that we could say for certain now, based on what we know about physics. And the first thing is that chemical rockets suck. So obviously, we can all agree on that. They're just too slow, even for our solar system. So chemical rockets, I think it's pretty obvious, are not going to have anything to do with any of this. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, they they could still play a role. Yeah, maybe you know, you know maybe getting us off the surface. Uh, yeah, I could. I would not be surprised if in a hundred years we still had chemical rockets launching. Yeah, off the I could see like, them. You know, you always have them for changing direction or for tweaking your your vector, or because you say take off and landing things like that. I mean, it's still probably going to be some kind of chemical rocket incorporated into any system. Well, I think chemical rockets will be in play for quite some time, but a hundred years from now, no, I don't Who think. Uh, well, keep this. Me, I just too, did. Bob. They're saying they're saying it's a hundred year project or whatever, but it's very possible, and I would even take a stab in the dark and say it's very likely that they'll come up with something a lot sooner than that. Well, I you think know? the hundred years is metaphorical. Yeah, it right. really is. It really is. And some people, a lot of people are saying it's really going to be 200 years before we have a starship. And that's just such baloney because, you, come on, you, you can't possibly predict, you know, af after 30, 40, 50 years. And, and they're going, you know, 100 years, 200 years, that's just a, a veil we cannot see behind. So to make predictions for that, that far in the future, I think, is, is kind of silly. But based on what we know now, and, I'm sh and a lot of this stuff's not going to change, um, you know, I don't think chemical rockets will have anything to do as specifically for a starship. You know, if we're going to another another star, Steve, I don't think chemical rockets will have no major role at all in, in this time frame. Um, I mean, just look at nuclear energy. There's orders, orders of magnitude more energy to be gleaned from, uh, from nuclear fuel, fuel. In fact, this type of fuel has got about 10 million times the energy density of chemical fuel. Now, that doesn't mean that it could travel 10 million times faster. 
but it just means it's just it's so much energy there uh, to pull from. Yeah. Um, you know, fission reactors on a starship would be so much better than chemical energies. I mean, just look at a nuclear submarine right now. They've got a they've got a golf ball sized chunk of uranium, and they're just traveling the oceans for months and months on time. It's just so much better than than anything a chemical rocket could do. But even that, I don't think it's going to is going to make any any serious role in, in a starship because um, I mean we're talking you know the, the distances we're talking about are just so immense. Um, I think a f- fission reactors I think uh, would probably be better. They could actually they could generate five times the energy from the same amount of fuel as, as a fission reactor. So fusion you know fusion doesn't exist yet, but I think it's you know we're talking a hundred years. I think yeah I think we'll have something that that we could use, and then of course. You, you got to think. All right, what's the best according to physics now? What's what's the best option for a spaceship engine? And I always think of oh, well, it's matter antimatter, right? I mean, you, it's it's yeah. famous. I mean, you you mix matter and antimatter, and and uh, you've got near a uh, near one hundred percent conversion of energy. And you know, if you learn anything about E equals mc squared, you know that a tiny tiny bit of matter equals a whole lot of energy. In fact, it's about two hundred times the power of fusion from the same from the same fuel. So it's, it's it's an incredible amount of energy. One thing, though, that I hadn't been aware of: Did you guys know that fifty percent of the energy produced by matter antimatter reactions is carried away by neutrinos? So that means, I mean, if you've got neutrinos taking away a lot of this energy. How are you going to tap into neutrinos and, and and pull out some of that power? I mean, neutrinos just don't interact with matter at all. So actually, you know, matter antimatter. Uh, reactions or annihilation engines, I mean, they're not going to be these these 100% efficient engines that will get us at close to the speed of light. I mean, there there still will be a tons of energy to to pull from these from these types of engines if we have, if we ever make them. But it's just not quite as much as I thought. I mean, fifty yeah. percent. still 50%, a lot of energy. It is. It's still a lot, but still a little, a little depressing. But for traveling through space, you not only need energy, you also need propellant, right? I mean, that's, right. You need something to throw out the back end of the ship. Nuclear explosions. Whether it's fission, fusion, or matter, antimatter, that's just producing, mainly that's producing the energy. Ideally, you would be accelerating something to very close to the speed of light to get the most efficient use of your propellant. But you'd still need something to throw out the back end, and that's probably would be more of a limiting factor than generating energy. Well, the, the, for fission and fusion, that, that's, uh, that's definite. Uh, yeah, you would definitely, you would use, uh, you would use the energy or the heat created by these, uh, these nuclear reactors, yeah, to heat a propellant and, uh, and squirt it out the back at high velocity. And of course, the, you know, the, uh, the faster it goes and the, the denser the propellant is, the exhaust is, and the, the faster you go. And yeah, we would have to, yeah, you'd have to carry a lot of propellant for those types of reactors. And, and I remember reading about, uh, uh, potential nuclear rockets from Mars. They would actually, uh, they could actually take propellant from the Mars itself, which would, which would mean that you wouldn't have to, Bring propellant with you for your yeah. return for your return trip, but yeah. But when you're talking about stars, you know, uh, trillions of miles away, then yeah, it's a little it's a little dicier. So yeah, we probably still would have to carry a lot with us. You know, just because you, you, when you think starship, you think oh, this thing is going to go close to the speed of light, but it doesn't have to. I mean, a starship could be what they you know a generation ship where you know it, it goes at a good clip, but not necessarily at a significant fraction of the speed of light, where even time dilation takes effect. If it's a generation ship where you basically have a civilization or a city ship traveling, then it doesn't really matter how fast you go because, I mean, you're taking your world with you in a sense. So it doesn't need to be fast. If you build the generation ship, then yeah, you could just take your time and, you know, maybe your great grandkids will get there or or even worse or even, you know, longer. It might take even longer, but that's just another way to look at it. It doesn't have to be a fast ship in order to be a starship. 
Did you ever right. think about like the the vetting process that they'd have, or like you know when they ask people who wants to go on to a spaceship that's never going to return to Earth? I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that would want to do it, but it's so interesting. Did. Astronauts have volunteered for this already. It won't be too difficult to to find that. I mean, think about it. It'd be the first person ever to uh, to, to see these places and live there. And uh, yeah, but the people who leave won't be those people, Bob. <laughs> Their descendants will be. If it's what a generation the, ship. Well, yeah, if it's a generation ship, yeah. But uh, yeah. if we if we could if we could bring time dilation into play by going fast enough, close enough to the speed of light, then yeah. you could you potentially, yeah, then you could be there. Uh, you just you just can't really care about Earth because it could be a burned out cinder by the time you get there. Well, you can care. You just it's part of the it's part of the you <laughs> You're know leaving it behind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's move on. There's a couple of news items about uh, the cure for the common cold. How many times have you guys seen that in a headline? Thirty-one. And Thirty-one. I've noticed that basically, whenever there's any research, well, here's the broader concept is that what the, what the media likes to do is take a basic science research, figure out what the most you know, extreme extrapolation of that uh, application of that research might be, and then that's what the headline is, right? Yeah. So we talked about this before, like, you know, the, a, some breakthrough in physics is an invisibility cloak, because right? that's, you know, because a thousand years from now, that, that could be one potential application. Uh, whenever there's anything to do with viruses, the headline is the cure for the common cold. That's the go-to headline. I mean, it's, it's like journalists have this playbook, you know, oh, virus <laughs> breakthrough, cure for the common cold. So, Steve, is the journalist the one that's actually making that connection or is the scientist actually saying it's a cure for the common that's cold? That's a good question. I, I've seen both of those things happen. It may also sometimes just be the headline writer, right? So there's the headline right. writer, there's the journalist, and there's the scientist, and they all play a role. But somehow at the end of the day, most of the time, you get to this cure for the common cold uh, headline. So there were actually two stories recently that somehow got that headline, even though neither of them had really anything to do with, with the cold. The first one, we actually got a lot of email about. This one was a, uh, a news item from Germany where scientists did a very interesting study where they the question was, could they use silver nanoparticles, nanoparticles of silver, to, to essentially surround viruses and keep them from, from entering cells and reproducing? And, however, one of the problems is that there, there are health concerns about the particles themselves. So what they did was they attached them to a benign bacteria, a friendly bacteria, the, the kind of uh, probiotic bacteria that you would find in yogurt, for example. And they used that as essentially as a delivery mechanism for the nanoparticles. And they did a study, which is a proof of concept, that they were, showed that the bacteria can deliver the nanoparticles of silver to a, the virus they used was the norovirus, which is not even a cold virus. It's not even a virus that can cause the common cold, but it can cause like uh, GI symptoms. And they found that it actually does have activity, antiviral activity against the virus. So it's a good proof of concept. Cool. Yeah, so the research is interesting. It is sort of a novel way of delivering a, an antiviral you know, particle, you know, but we still have to see how this will all pan out. We don't know if this is going to be applicable in people. There's always lots of hurdles between 
this kind of proof of concept and actually having a product that people can take to treat a viral infection. We need to know that it's safe. We need to know that it will work in a, in a human host, that what, which viruses it will have activity against. Is there any mechanism of resistance, et cetera? So there's, there's lots of steps in the way. Most of the stuff at this stage doesn't end up on store shelves, right? Doesn't end up being something that is a, an actual viable treatment. That's why. Yeah, we, and by the time they get through all of those stages and everything, it might be a treatment for something, but it may not be a flu virus. Right. It may not be a flu or cold virus, or it may just never have a human application because we figure out that it kills brain cells or something. Whatever. You just never know what, what the, right. what, what's going to happen. <laughs> Some it monsters. has to go through all kinds of toxicity and you know, all kinds of uh, pharmacodynamics and kinetics kinds of studies before we, before we decide that. Uh, so most things don't pan out. That's, that's the bottom line. But it's, imp- it's important, I think, to, to note that. I mean, we've got tons of different types of antibiotics, but, but we don't really have any anything that works against viruses, right? Well, I mean, that's there's, not there's true. We have antivirals. There's, antivirals. There's, there's some, but, it not, but it's very limited. Not as many. There aren't as many. Not the nearly viruses as many. Viruses are harder. Not, right, and generally, if you, have, if you have a viral infection, you just treat the symptoms and wait until it goes away, generally, right, generally yeah. speaking. Um, so, and so any so any breakthrough in, in creating you know antiviral medicines, I think, is great. I mean, because we we need it. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, there, there's clearly a need for more antiviral technology and new approaches. You know, viruses have a much simpler life cycle than bacteria, so there's there's less stuff to interfere with. You know, it's a lot easier to interfere with bacteria. Plus, bacteria are actually you know whole living cells that 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 can be disrupted in lots of ways. And, they're alive, and they're different than eukaryotic cells. So we can exploit those differences. Yeah, you yeah. know, like they have different cell membranes, for example. So we can exploit those differences to to create drugs that interfere with bacterial life cycle without interfering with the host life cycle. Uh, viruses are also very different, of course, but they're much simpler. They actually rely upon the mechanisms of of the host cells a lot, you know, to, for their life cycle. They they can't do everything themselves, so there's a there's a lot less to interfere with there. But we have antivirals for for HIV, right? There's you know highly active antiretroviral therapy for HIV. There are anti herpes drugs like acyclovir, for example, uh, and there's you know Tamiflu. There are some drugs that have some modest effect against flu viruses, but absolutely. Absolutely, we could use some, you know, more weapons in, in the fight against uh, certain viral infections. Uh, that doesn't mean that this is going to be one of them. It just means that right. this, is, this is interesting research. It's, it's good. Hopefully, it will pan out. Hopefully, it will be great. The cold, though, is is such an odd. I mean, you know, obviously, people use that because of its psychological uh, reasons, but that's probably one of the, the less likely. Uh, in applications, only because there are so many different viruses that cause the cold. Like Two hundred comes to mind. I think yeah, you would need you would need something that would have a, a broad antiviral activity against a lot of different kinds of viruses. So, so that makes it a little bit less likely than say like the HIV, which is one very specific virus. Right. right? And if you and if you could work against all the different types of cold viruses, then why wouldn't you also work against some of the other other viruses out there? So why would yeah. you right? Yeah, there's no just no reason to target the common cold except for that's the headline you want. Right, right. right. Missing link, cure common cold, cure for cancer. I mean, that's the that's the headline you want. Scientists baffled. Scientists baffled. <laughs> uh, the next one is is again just a very interesting bit of basic science, and there was no particular reason to go for the common cold cure thing, but that's where they went. And this one it was a study that showed that contrary to prior belief, that antibodies 
can actually get into the cell, into the host cells, where they can target viruses and shut down their reproduction once Whoa. they're already in the cell. And and that it was that was not known. It was actually there was no evidence that that our own antibodies would get into the cells. Basically, it was thought once the virus gets inside the cell, it's basically cut off from the immune system and and it will do its nasty work. Holy but crap. Uh, but uh, yeah, this research showed that um, the antibodies can get inside the cell. They could actually activate a protein called trim 21 that this has antiviral activity so this does whenever whenever we discover something new in the basic science about how stuff works that if, that always comes with the potential that we might exploit that new bit of knowledge in order to have some specific application right I mean, that's sort of just generically always true so it becomes you know kind of trivial to say oh this might lead to this application, and they just they pull out the sexy application that that right. always makes the headlines. Um, so, I mean, it gets a little annoying rather than just putting it in perspective. This is just one you know, little bit of basic science information that's very interesting, and hopefully, we'll figure out ways to exploit it to do uh, to do interesting things like you know attack viruses, or maybe increase the the the, the host's immune reaction or efficiency against a viral infection to maybe shorten its severity. Uh, shorten its duration or reduce its severity. That that certainly is plausible. Steve, this is definitely one of those times where you know we we read a lot of news items that are in this zone where we don't know what's going to happen. And it sounds like there's a lot of prospect there or hope. But overall, like you know, this like so many other news items is just going to fade into nothing, yeah. and maybe nothing will come of it too. That's just the way science goes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there there, there are tons of these little basic science advances that are published all the time right it's just you know it's just the way that the mainstream media chooses to relay this information to the public oh yeah evan you're going to tell us about we're going to you know from a couple of serious uh science news items to another somewhat silly one about uh people who believe there is evidence of life on the moon yeah speaking of headlines (laughs) listen (laughs) to this headline from aol.com some say moon photos show signs of alien life. Some cranks. Some, some cranks. <laughs> some losers. Want, now, <laughs> yes, and yes. You want to guess who some refers to? Uh, <laughs> Hoagland. Jenny McCarthy. <laughs> Richard C. Hoagland. Yeah. <laughs> One who of else? our favorites. I, I'm not even really sure why this made the news this week. I guess it was slow over at AOL.com, but they did a whole story on it. This is not necessarily new. Uh, this is something that uh, Hoagland has been claiming for for years now, many years. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, he wrote a book about it, uh, co-wrote a book called Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. Back in 2007, in which uh, Hoagland alleges there are these huge glass towers and domes on the moon that have uh, produced prismatic or rainbow effects on Apollo astronaut photographs, which were available through the NASA website. And he claims uh, numerous geometric ground features uh, are evidence of ancient structures. So with Hoagland, you know, one day it's Mars, the next day it's the moon. Uh, There's aliens everywhere, basically, Mm -hmm. on every planet and satellite out, you know, in our solar system. It's basically, he's made a career out of pareidolia, this guy. But yeah, do we think right. he's? Does he believe it, or is he? You know, is this just part of his game? You know, have you ever seen him speak? Like ever, like seen him video, a video interview with him? He's pretty passionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got I, those. 
you know, crazy eyes. <laughs> it's got them crazy, crazy eyes. eyes. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think he totally believes. <laughs> that's Definitely. my. This is my gut reaction. Watching him speak. Yeah, he just you know, he pours over photos and looks for anomalies. Sometimes the anomalies are actually artifacts of the of like the digitalization process or pixelization. It's not even actually like a geological anomaly. Com- compression, yeah, compression. Um, just all kinds of lighting pareidolias. It's just a, a thousand examples of the face on Mars. Yeah, right? but he's also big as far as uh, conspiracies involving NASA. He thinks that NASA is uh, one of their primary purposes is to cover up. Yeah. These these discoveries and, and this information right. from the public. Well, the author of this article from AOL.com went on to interview some real scientists who basically say there's nothing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to what Hoagland claims about uh, about these features on the moon and so forth. And, of course, our friend Phil Plate has blogged extensively yeah. on Mr. Hoagland and his uh, history. And uh, you can go to – he has a whole section called Richard Hoagland's Nonsense <laughs> with a table of contents, an introduction, conclusion, links of interest, and a dozen or so articles uh, having to do with all the things that Hoagland claims. So, But uh, again, getting back to the uh, title of this article, some say moon photos show signs of alien life. <laughs> So what what is the the leading uh, things that they're seeing Ev, that that's giving them that idea? Well, you can look at the video uh, on attached to that article, and it just looks like fuzzy black and white photos of moon rocks to me. The uh, the first and there's photographs. Uh, the Apollo ten astronaut astronauts from 1969 took a picture of a striking geometric square on the moon. How could Ooh. that be? You know, so perfect. Steve, uh, in related, I guess somewhat related to this. Well, there's another alien crank involved. (laughs) The ballot initiative that uh, went up for vote because it was election day just the other day here in the United States. And we've talked about this before, that this was coming. Uh, The Denver gentleman named Jeff Peckman. Who bought that alien video. Remember that crazy alien video that he thought was real? That was crazy. Yeah, the stuffed head. Yeah. Pops which, up behind the behind which, the window. Which oh, one? that's the oh, one where yeah. it's, it's dark outside, and the head comes up, and, it, and it's like yeah. the classic alien look. Okay, it's like a muppet. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Well, he had g- gained enough signatures, and we had spoken about this, you know, nine yeah. months ago or so. Uh, enough signatures in Denver so that a ballot initiative would go on this year's voting ballot, uh, asking the people of Denver to vote for a alien commission to track space aliens. And it uh, would have allowed residents to post their observations on the Denver City webpage and report sightings. In the results, 106,000 people voted against the proposal. <laughs> Which was like 80%, 000. right? It was like 80%. 20,000 in favor. Right? Yeah. So that, that's Overwhelmingly against. So good job, Denver. Well that's because Phil Plate lives there, right? Is that why? It's his influence. It's the plate effect? The plate effect, yeah. <laughs> plate tectonics? Ooh, <laughs> kind of like terrible. that. Oh, that was great, actually. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Tell us about last week's Who's That Noisy? Yeah, well, I'll do better than that. I'll actually play it for you. Here we go.
How cool that's, is that? It's that's a uh, interpretive theater from the 1970s. It's a soundtrack to that. Or yeah. it's it's the Prisoner soundtrack. A lot of interesting guesses as to what exactly that was. This one is a recording of a globular cluster that is home to 23 millisecond pulsars. Oh. And since they're all spinning and resonating at different frequencies, the radio wave ensemble sounds like organ music. That's oh, awesome. Cool. The name you of the <laughs> cluster is uh, 47 Tucane, T-U-C-A-N-A-E, <laughs> which you it's- may know as the second largest and second brightest globular cluster in the nighttime skies. It's totally fitting that these gigantically huge suns that are out there are making like that wicked dramatic like you know it's almost like music from uh the omega man or uh you know one of those yeah. you know what you called uh what was the monkey movie come on planet of the, uh, planet planet of the, planet of the apes <laughs> yeah you know it's not it would be really weird if like they they turn that that those uh magnetic pulses into music and it was like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> that's never gonna happen but globular clusters by the way are, are collections of stars that are Typically, I think uh, they typically have what a hundred thousand stars that are kind of like in a, in a spherical shape that orbit that orbit the center of our galaxy or our other yeah. galaxies as well. So, they're, and they're very and they're very ancient stars as well. Right, they're old, amazing things, and they sound like Stanley Kubrick soundtrack music or some movie with Charlton Heston in it. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to give uh, I'm going to award this week's winner. Uh, Wait, got it? Worm, well, Worm Guy. He was uh, he was the first and closest, I think, who says that uh, it sounded much like the work of a friend of his was using a transformation of infrared astronomy observations mm-hmm. into sounds for an educational program. So cosmic background radiation or something to that effect. So that that's, that's pretty darn close. Yeah, Ish. I think I think he gets the uh, he gets that's the victory this week. Well done, worm guy. Oh, and I like your icon on the uh, message boards. Very cool. Is it a worm? Yes, wearing glasses and blinking. Ah. Is, it a, is it a round worm? Or a flatworm? Or a tapeworm? It's, yeah, gross. It's one of those green wor- cartoonish green worms that you see like in an apple, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Cartoony worm. What do you got for this week, Evan? We have a person. You have to guess who's that noisy. Oh, that? A cold reading is you warm up the sucker by telling him things that he says, how could he ever know that, you see? You say, you know, between the ages of uh, 13 and 15, you had a a great change came in your life. But that happens in everybody's life. (laughs) All right, everyone. Give it your best guess. Good luck. Thanks, Evan. I think we have time for one email. This one comes from Sean Dowling from Brisbane, Australia. You're not supposed to pronounce the A or the E, apparently. Brisbane. Not Brisbane. Not Brisbane. And Sean writes... Here's a weird one. A coworker of mine has an odd habit of laying bananas out over her desk. She tells me that this is because a banana will ripen faster if it is touching another banana. Now, I've heard the old tale that you can ripen other fruit by putting a banana next to it, but I haven't heard that you need to separate bananas from each other. Is there any validity to her claim, or is she simply bananas? <laughs> he writes, P.S. I won the additional lottery... I won the additional tickets lottery, and I and can go to Tam Oz. Prepare to be shaken by the hand rogues. That's awesome. With Good a banana. You. With a banana. <laughs> right. You better have a banana oh. in that hand. That's right. Or or plantain. That that way so, we'll know it's him or Ray Comfort. Right. Uh, 
I asked Steve to let me cover <laughs> this one because uh, I knew that there was going to be some cool things that I didn't know about about bananas and about fruit and everything. I, I just, so I decided I wanted to research this topic, and I was right. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know about. It's a very cool thing that's going on here. So the basic idea is that uh, a lot of fruits give off ethylene, and they give off ethylene as they ripen. And ethylene is a hormone. It's a plant hormone. And that plant hormone actually can interact with other fruit and cause them to ripen. Do you know what you call the kind of fruit that it does interact with? They're called ethylene producers. But they're, the, the kind of fruit is climacteric fruit. Climacteric. Yes, you're, you're correct, Steve. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Apples, bananas, melons, apricots, and tomatoes. And cantaloupe, honeydew, kiwi fruit, mangoes, nectarines, papayas, pears, plums, and tomatoes. Right, Thank but you. not citrus, grapes, or strawberries. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there's ethylene-sensitive produce. Mm-hmm. So there's ones that produce it, and there's ones that are sensitive to it. Like watermelon is sensitive to it. Uh, asparagus and carrots and broccoli and cucumbers and eggplant and bananas. Like, so some produce it and are sensitive, and some are just sensitive, and some just produce it. Oh, so wow. I, so anyway, so... Uh, right out of the gate, the, I believe that the uh, the guy's coworker is wrong about the bananas having to touch. They don't have to touch. It's that they're in close proximity to each other because the best thing to do is put a producer, an ethylene producer, in the bag, um, something that hopefully is more ripe than the fruit that you want to ripen. So let's say you take a very ripe apple or a very ripe banana and you put it into a paper bag with a group or you know it doesn't have to be a group. It could be one banana. We put it in there. The ethylene is going to come out of the ripened fruit, and it's going to, um, you know, cause the the unripened fruit to start to ripen faster. And then they said a banana will ripen, uh, depending on what state it's in. You know, is it really green? Is it you know mostly yellow with a green stem? It, to a day, day and a half, you can put pretty much pull the banana to any place that you want it to be in the ripening scale. <laughs> you said um, pull the banana. Yeah, I did. <laughs> a few more cool things I found out. One. That uh, refrigeration does slow down the ripening process. Therefore, um, like let's say you put a bunch of bananas in, in a drawer in your refrigerator and one of them happened to be very ripe. It's still producing more ethylene than the other fruit by comparison, but overall all of the ripening will slow down. And the exact refer, uh, reverse is here, happens here that if you heat things up, they'll ripen faster. So if you put a ban- bananas or whatever fruit into a warm room, they, they will ripen faster. That's another reason why proximity to fruit may hasten ripening is because they also give off a little bit of heat when they ripen, and, and that extra heat can actually accelerate the ripening process in the in neighboring fruit. The uh, bananas range in calories from 75 calories, that's in your standard 6-inch banana, to 140 calories in the larger 9-inch banana. And as the banana gets longer, it gets a little thicker too, and that's why... Uh, the calories jump up like they do. Um, nutritionally, bananas are awesome nutritionally. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know to what degree they were, but there is a, an enormous amount of positive nutrition in bananas. So low in sodium and fat, high in potassium and magnesium. They're excellent for fiber. Uh, has fiber, vitamin A, vitamin B, <laughs> B's, vitamin C, B six, magnesium, thiamine, riboflavin, niacin. Now you can get thirteen percent of your daily requirement for fiber in one banana, which is great. Wow. Now, a few things about ethylene as a hormone. Uh, so ethylene is used in a lot of different times during the growth of a plant and the fruit that it bears. So ethylene is a hormone that does a lot of different things throughout the life cycle, even way before the fruit 
is even grown on the uh, on the plant or on the tree or whatever. So that's an interesting read if you want to get into the details on that. One thing I, I found that was interesting is that if you took a toothpick or a fork or something and you, you scratched a banana, the injury that the banana sustained will actually uh, make it ripen faster. That's why when a banana gets dropped or if, you, if it gets pierced or scratched in any way, it'll turn brown in that spot because what's happening is that injury actually causes ethylene to come out faster and it ripens that por- portion a lot faster. So you often notice that if, you, if, a, if a banana is injured, the actual fruit inside the peel will be brown too underneath the injury. And I always didn't understand why that took place. And it's just because ethylene is being created faster because of the injury. And what actually happens, now Steve, I'm going to test you on this because you said that you, you also read a lot of information. What is happening when a fruit ripens? Well, there's multiple you know, chemical reactions inside the fruit itself. There are enzymes are being activated that are breaking down fiber, etc. There's uh, oxidation activity is happening. Essentially, the, the way the, the fruits evolve, there's a maturation period, and then once that maturation period ends, it shifts into the climacteric period, right, where they, it then tr- wants to rapidly ripen. And that's why you have some fruits have this positive feedback loop of the more they ripen, the more they release ethylene, which then produces even more ripening. So the ripening process is, sort of, is a cascade that unfolds very rapidly. So, but what actually takes place is, uh, as the fruit ripens, it's breaking down the the complex starch into sugar. That's one of the things that happens. Yeah. 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 Well, that, and that's basically what makes it sweeter. That's why yeah. ripened fruit tastes sweeter. Um, did you know that something else happens to bananas when they ripen, Jay? That they actually uh, release chemicals that will fluoresce when exposed to ultraviolet light. I did cool. read that. Isn't that I cool? I did read that. So some Holy animals, crap. some animals like birds, may see fluorescing blue, you know, bananas when they're ripe. That would make them really easy to see the ripe ones from the not cool. ripe ones. That is that's awesome. Glowing, that's yeah. pretty glowing sweet. the dark bananas. Yeah. <laughs> who would have thunk it? And what uh, the the um, banana export industry basically does, you know, that they when they they pick the bananas green. They cool yeah. them to keep them from ripening until they get to their destination. But once they arrive at their destination, they actually put them in a room with ethylene. Ethylene, yeah. To Speed ripen them. To then Now they want to ripen them very quickly. And from what I've read, that process produces the really vivid yellow color that we all associate with a ripening banana. But if you let bananas ripen on the vine, they never get that yellow. They turn into like a greenish yellow when they're ripe. Isn't that interesting? I always wow. wondered if, if bananas would have a slightly different flavor if they fully ripened on the tree and you ate one. I've supposed to be better. That. Supposed to be better if they're mm. ripened on the tree as oh opposed boy. to... If any <laughs> listener out there has had the opportunity to eat a fully ripened banana off the tree, please email us and let us know. I'd love you to know. know some banana. You have to specify banana- species. There's 160 or something yeah. species of banana. Wow. That many. Some bananaologist yeah. is going to get a hold of us. We, we, us we only know the Cavendish. Well, let's go on with our interview. Well, we're sitting here now at TAM 8, the Amazing Meeting 8 in Las Vegas with Jamie Ian Swiss. Jamie, welcome back to The Skeptics Guy. And it's great to be back. And Jamie is a magician, and recently within Skeptical Circles, you have been doing the Honest Liar segment for the JREF's podcast for good reason. 
I'm pleasantly surprised you mentioned that, Steve. <laughs> well, we do. <laughs> yes, uh, DJ Grothy is uh, hosting uh, the new uh, co-sponsor with JREF uh, podcast, For Good Reason, at forgoodreason.org. And I uh, provide a weekly commentary called The Honest Liar, which is basically about anything and everything to do with deception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that phrase because it pretty much sums up what you and other magicians have told us. And Randy, like, will also has that shtick where he says, "I'm going to lie and deceive you, deceive you, but I just told you I'm going to do that." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and that's the moral contract that yeah. the magician has with the audience. Mm-hmm. Well, as an avid listener of the show, I told actually I was on the phone with Jamie last week, and I told him. That's my favorite segment. I yeah. love that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I look forward to it. The stories are – Jamie goes into things like uh, um, like you go to the subway and someone's doing the three-card three Monty. And he tells you the a whole emotional story about how it happens and what it's like to be the person, what it's like to be the people cheating the person, the whole thing. It's fantastic. I so that's not real? Thank you so much. What? That's not real? The it's part about you losing okay. your money is yeah. right <laughs> doesn't get more real than that. But yeah, you know they say it. They say it's a game of chance. It's actually a game of no chance. Right. The only way to have a one is three cards on the table. The only way to actually have a one in three chance is to close your eyes. Mm-hmm. Once you open your eyes, you have no chance at all. <laughs> Jamie, I wanted to ask you this when I heard that segment. Have you seen people get scammed like that in person? Oh, hun- hundreds of times. What, I mean, what do you they, do? If not, if not more. Well, there's not much you you can do. Because you've got, at a minimum, in a Monty game, especially in the days when it was commonplace in New York, it no longer is, although that doesn't say you can't still find it. You can still find it. Hmm. But you've got, at a very minimum, an operator, a uh, wall man who's basically a lookout and muscle, and then Hmm. you probably have a minimum of two shills or confederates. So you're, you're up against at least four people to start. And more likely... There's two or three games on the block, so multiply that out. Mm-hmm. So there's a dozen people there ready to bust you in the head if you try and stop the game or protect a player. Mm-hmm. Right? If you try and step up and say, uh, don't do that, yeah. um, you're, you're going to have your head handed to you. So you can't really do much of that. Now, I have, and I, and I actually hate to even tell this to people because it encourages people and lets them think they can actually do this. I have, exactly once in my life, taken money from a money operator, bet and took money. But I'm an expert, and it was a unique set of circumstances where I was watching a guy for a period of time who was very old school and who would, among other things, actually pay off on a losing bet, which generally today in Monty they will not do. Even if you win, they will either subsequently switch the cards Mm -hmm. to make it look like you've lost – or they'll just knock the game over. I mean, they're not going to pay you, yeah. and, uh, which is different than the old days. Because in the old days, an uh, old school operator, if you happened to get lucky and you won, he knew that that would convince you you had figured out the game and you are just going to bet the money back. Right. So that was a unique circumstance that I did really just for the experience. Now, I have challenged other players on occasion. I've been in tug. I, listen, I, was, I once threw a bet down because I wanted the guy to get away from my building right, when I had an office years ago. We, well, we ended, I mean, there was no way he was going to pay me, and we literally ended up in a tug of war over the, dollar, over the $20 yeah, bill, yeah. <laughs> which I start because I tried to put it down on the correct place. He thought I was going to put it down somewhere else, and I went to turn over the card, which you're not allowed to do, uh-huh. and we ended up in this tug of war with the, the, over the card, oh and I picked my money up with my other hand, and I kicked the table over with the other hand, and I said, <laughs> if you're not going to pay, don't play here. Yeah. And I walked away. But, you know, I'm, I was born in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got that in your DNA, don't do this. Don't do anything we've just <laughs> yeah. talked about. Let's wow. just cut that because it's bad advice. James, did you ever see someone do it really well and you had to admit to yourself that 
they had really finely well, you, skills. You well, know? you have to understand that you cannot really compare the skills of a Monty operator to the skills of a sleight-of-hand magician. And I'm actually going to quote here from my friend Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller in their book, How to Play With Your Food, if I remember correctly, to which I was a small consultant, creative consultant. He talks about the idea that it's sort of like comparing you know, a, a purse snatcher's running abilities with an Olympic runner. Mm-hmm. You know, ah. the, the purse snatcher may run really, really fast, but you, you know, that's an isolated skill. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. And it's the same thing with the Monty operator. He knows how to switch two cards, and that's all he knows right. how to do. That's his life. And not only that, he has a tremendous advantage, and this is the point that, that Penn makes. He has a tremendous advantage because he's using lying as a method. Mm-hmm. In other words, his victim believes that the game is legitimate, that it's a game of chance that he can win, which is not true. But when I step on stage as the honest liar, right, Uh which is what I am as a magician, I've already put the the audience on notice. I'm going to be trying to fool you. That makes my job much more difficult Mm -hmm. than the con man's job or the phony psychic's job. Well, that's redundant. But the the Yuri Gellers of the world, doesn't, don't have to necessarily be great sleight-of-hand artists because they have belief on their side. Right. Well, just before we were talking about uh, lie detector yeah. tests, I asked Jamie, um, was well, there anything about the, uh, about, uh, the ability to actually, uh, does your body do anything? And you said no. There isn't, a, there isn't a real physical response, right? But the thing I really want to hear you talk about is, I want to know, can you read someone well if they're lying? Do you have, do you, have you learned there, any You know, of there, is, there is no measurable physiological response that is associated directly with deception. Mm -hmm. None. The polygraph, which is a pseudoscientific device, okay, completely, okay, Mm -hmm. a pseudoscientific device for which there is no substantial replicable scientific evidence for its function, Mm -hmm. does not, even by by its supporters, does not, cannot measure deception. It measures nervousness and operates on the extremely faulty premise that when you lie, you are nervous. Now, some people are, Mm -hmm. but some honest people are nervous when they're telling the truth Mm -hmm. and they're hooked up to a machine and a guy is asking them personal questions. And on the other hand, I'm a professional liar. I lie with impunity on stage. Um, and I, I'm not nervous about it. So right. it, it's this body of false and complicated assumptions. And it's actually worse than that. The polygraph is so outrageous. If the, the, the assumptions we make about the polygraph make it sound better than it is or more logical than it is. People have the notion that the polygraph depends on uh, the examiner asking baseline questions, which supposedly tell the, the examiner something about what the person looks like when they're telling the truth. That is not true at all. What the polygraph is really doing is asking three kinds of questions. One is a set of irrelevant questions that are just kind of filler. They're neutral, and they're not uh, scored, basically. One is, the important thing is what they call control questions, and control questions are questions that are designed to get a physiological response to make you uncomfortable and nervous. A question that's actually difficult for anyone to answer honestly and directly, such as, have you, have you ever lied to protect yourself? Uh, uh. <laughs> right, right, okay. <laughs> How do you, well, what do you mean? You know, yeah, uh, yeah. What? So, put you right? so now the idea is, is that that question raises your physiological responses, mm-hmm. right? And now that gives them something to establish so that when they now and then they mix in these irrelevant questions and then when I ask you the relevant or pertinent questions did you take the money the idea is if your reaction is higher 
then the reaction to the control question is therefore you're lying. Well, this, this is a, just this is a pyramid of nutty assumptions. Right. And uh, it just, the thing, it, 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 it's, it's a terrible device. Yep. It's, uh, you, we were better off in, in, the, in the 1600s when we, we tied a witch to a stool and ducked her under the water. <laughs> and if, if she survived, it meant she was a witch, so we burned her at the stake. Right. And if she died, then we know she was telling the truth. Right. Uh, what do you think about the show Lie to Me? Uh, now, The Lie to Me show is based on the work of Paul Ekman. And Paul Ekman is the guy who developed, uh, discovered micro-expressions and devised this system, the fact system, of, of, of recording these expressions, which, which basically works in, by freeze-framing videotapes. They're supposedly tiny expressions that reveal the emotional state of the, of the speaker, but in flashes, they're, involunt- they're supposedly involuntary and cross-cultural, mm-hmm. not culture-dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's developed a tremendous body of work on this, and he also uh, offers courses today and, and so on. And, and the, the Lie to Me show is based on his, on his work. You know, there's a few things here that have to be said. The first thing is, even if you believe in Ekman's work, even if you support Ekman's work, the character played by Tim Roth, who's a wonderful actor, mm-hmm. uh, he, he's really like a superhero. He has superpowers yeah. in the ability to do this. <laughs> he even Ekman doesn't claim that people can do it in real time, although he does claim that you can take his little online course for only eighty nine ninety five, and if you act now, um, uh, you know, that you can learn a certain amount of it, he claims, right? right? But then now we have to go to look at the real science behind Ekman, and even though Ekman is considered by many to be in a different category than most of the conventional assumptions about body language, we all know, for example, if someone is standing there with their arms folded, right, that that indicates that they're kind of resistant to what you're being said, right. being yeah. said. Bullshit! There's, yeah. ab- there's no <laughs> clinical evidence of this at all. It's just common knowledge in pop psychology. Yeah. It's just not true at all. Um, it, you know, it might just be because he's cold. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, even, so generally, body language is, is nonsense uh, in, t- in terms of making any consistent claims about it. Ekman is in a different class, but Ekman has his critics as well. And one of the first things you have to say when you look at Ekman's work is the fact that as far as peer publishing in peer-reviewed journals, he hasn't done it in decades. Uh-oh. Decades. And wow. he says that this is because he doesn't want his material to be uh, misused against uh-huh. the United States. But okay, okay, <laughs> this is science, dude. Yeah, yeah. Nate, right. show me a scientific field where we're going to accept that argument about right. why we're not publishing reputable Jamie, he, results in too, peer-reviewed studies. He's too busy helping people, okay? Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> got more exactly. important things. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm yeah. a little skeptical. Yeah, right. Now, just a, one side note on the body language thing. Uh, I totally agree with you. You can't infer what somebody is um, feeling or thinking by their body language. But what I think where people are getting backwards is what the, the, their, the body language, though, has an effect on what other people think about them, though. So when you cross your arms, the research does, shows that doesn't mean that you're being defensive. It shows people it think shows you are. People think you are, exactly. Right. Right. And people get that confused. Yeah. Right. Because, and, and, but, and really what that literature is showing is that we give a lot of false body language signals. And sometimes there are, body, there are body language signals that are just built into our facial features that we can't control. And, and your point uh, is further evidence for the unmistakable fact that nonverbal communication is certainly a part mm-hmm. of human communication. Mm-hmm. That, that is un- unarguable. Not only is it unarguable, it has long pr- uh, precedent in the non-human animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Predators, for example, look, you know, a wolf that is statistically successful 7 to 12% of the time, I think, in terms of attempted hunts, yeah. attempt, attempted attacks. So if a, if a wolf pack 
is trying to single out a caribou from a herd of thousands. They can't, they're at such a disadvantage because the prey species is so strong in so many ways. It's such a delicate balance between predator and prey, right, that they can't really change targets in the course of a run. So what they have to do is they have to single out a target ahead of time and focus in on it and then hope they're successful. So what they're trying to do at a distance is single out, and this is leads to, this has to do with what we discovered in the last few decades, how predators are of service to prey and of value we used to exterminate predators uh, up until uh, some decades ago because we thought all predators were bad. But predators actually strengthen prey species because they take out the elderly, the sick, the wounded, it's, and yeah, so yeah. on. Well, they detect those targets by means of body language, mm-hmm. by means of nonverbal communication, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that this exists. The question is, can you systematically interpret it? And this is right. really the problem. And this is exacerbated today in pop culture by NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, right. which is also, mm-hmm. uh, what would be the word? Uh, bullshit! Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And this is also, you know, you're looking up one way, right? Your eyes right. cast one way, you're thinking about this, your eyes cast, you know, and there's this whole uh, seduction thing about that's tied in with NLP and and, and all these they're, they're just they're just more they're self-supporting marketing right uh, systems that create their own false language like uh, what was the after what was the group the aftermath of uh, est um, uh, uh, for, forum isn't it forum uh, landmark which is another one of these you know large-scale social groups and so forth and what it is it's a marketing scheme that takes existing you know pop self-help knowledge recreates language mm-hmm. so that now you feel like you're in on something special mm-hmm. and sells it to you for a lot of money as you yeah. work your way up in this self-supporting idea that, that you're grading someone, you're getting more skilled and yeah. right. another marketing scheme. And that's, yeah. that's what NLP But is. Jamie, we do know that, that you could tell when somebody's lying to you or we have detected, I'm sure you have, I know I have, detected people lying to me. You're sitting there and you're going, this, this person is full of shit, they're lying. And I know I'm not right all the time, but there are... Uh, Right, but there, but there are things. But you know, there, I think there are things that people do that that tip me off unconsciously. That I get that. But why do I get the vibe? That no, but here's lying the but here's me? the problem. Sure, you get the vibe, Jay. But but here's the problem. We are terrible, terrible researchers, right? Naive. The in the in the words of the the title of a wonderful book from the early '90s. You know, logic and reason, the scientific method, is quote unquote the uncommon sense. We're not really meant to think this way. This is why skeptics are in the minority. It's hard. To, to decide that your intuitive and personal anecdotal experience, it's hard to say, I'm going to put that aside in the favor of some double-blind test that some guy did in a room that I wasn't there and so forth, yeah, right? Yeah. That's what yeah. the scientific method tells us. Yeah. But experience is a, is, a terrible, <laughs> is a terrible way to judge what works and what not, it doesn't work in the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and, because, and so the perfect example is the phone rings, we guess who it is, uh-huh. We all do it. Yeah. We pick up the phone. Now it is the person. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But we remember the hits. The hits stand out yeah. and the and the infinite quantities of misses, they go away. Right. You know, how many people think still think today if you stare long enough at the back of somebody's head in the bus, they're gonna turn around and look at you. Right. It's because we're terrible researchers. We're not nobody's standing there going, Okay, how many times did we guess? <laughs> yeah. How many times did we fail? <laughs> yeah. And and Steve, you you I've heard you often often yeah. remind us all we are terrible observers. Yeah. We right. all human beings suck as observers. So yeah, you got the feeling that somebody's lying to you. Well, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe there's a lot of information that you had that's helping to tell you that mm-hmm. about that person, about the situation, that 
That's know, true. How do you parse Absolutely. all that out, right? Yep. Um, on the other hand, how do you know you were right? Yeah, well, actually, I'll give you an example without naming any names, but we were talking to someone, not in an interview, but the, the, the five of us were talking to someone. After we talked to them, I turned to Steve and I go, that guy's full of shit. <laughs> And I named something that the guy said. And I swear to God, I'm sitting there, and it sounded to me like the guy was lying. So he goes, he's telling the truth. He, I know he's telling the truth. I mean, it sounded like he was lying. Right, it sounded exactly. like he just made it up off the top of his head right then. And this is why it's so dangerous yeah. to make these assumptions that we actually know something, that when someone you know, blinks a little more, it means he's lying. I mean, these things don't work. These things absolutely don't work. And in, in poker, you know, in gambling now, mm-hmm. right, if you're a skilled poker player, this whole our idea about psychology and deception, yeah. this is a part of a game, yeah. a part of a skilled game, mm-hmm. not for the average player, but I'm talking serious players, yeah. right? Top, people tops in their game. I was talking uh, over lunch yesterday to Paul Harris, who, if you're a poker player out there, you probably know something about Paul Harris's uh, poker blog. He's a radio personality from St. Louis, also plays a lot of poker. The fact that tells, right? So a tell, that's gambler jargon for um, an unconscious revelation of something about your style or manner of play, that you're unaware. It's a kind of body language, sort of, in a way. But the thing is... There's no such thing as a universal tell. There's right. no, a real expert poker player understands that there's no such thing as saying anytime any player does blank, it means this. It's ridiculous. Now, it's like, it's like Jungian psychology that there's some kind of right. you know, universal symbol. It's, it's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, but tells do enter into the game, but the only way they do is A, when you have sufficient mathematical knowledge to really have the maximum no- expertise to understand what is out on the table, what it means about what you don't know, which is to say everybody's down cards. Mm -hmm. And now, now, if you have all of that information, you play with this person for a while and you begin to learn something about their style of play. Mm -hmm. And now you combine all of that. And now you can equate or, or distinguish some kind of tell distinct to this person about how they bet, how they handle the chips, how they handle the cards when they're bluffing, when they're not. This is a very complicated game, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It does exist, but it requires a high level of expertise. All right. Well, thank you very much, James. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks, fellas. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, we come up with three news items or facts, two real and one fake, and we challenge our panel of skeptics to sniff out which one is the fake. Are you guys excited? Oh, yeah. So excited. My, my olfactory senses are tingling. Very much so. Are you ready? And Jay's covering this week, if that's not obvious. If that's not obvious. Who? I'm enjoying this. This one was actually hard. Now, today, guys, I have three real science items and one I completely made up. So there's still three news items here to discuss, but I wanted to add in uh, just a complete and total fake. Gotcha. Okay. So we have to choose from right. four items. Just, okay. Just keep that in mind that I completely made up one of these, right, as you hear these. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Ready. ready. Neanderthals were more promiscuous than modern humans, fossil finger bones suggest. Item number two, bad habits can cause your children and possibly grandchildren to end up with a psychiatric disorder. Item number three, positive psychological changes from meditation training are linked to cellular health. And item number four, astronomers have found evidence that volcanic activity may still be possible on the moon. Evan, you go. You made up one of these whole cloth? Yep. Well, Neanderthals were more promiscuous 
more promiscuous. Boy, those Neanderthals really got around, didn't they? Yeah, they like the bone. And, and they didn't have the internet, so, oof, boy. I believe that one's true. Uh, bad habits can cause your children and possibly grandchildren to end up with a psychiatric disorder. Based on what, though? Bad habits. Like chewing your fingernails or farting in public? I mean, it's kind of general, kind of vague. I'm not I'm sure about that one. Uh, positive psychological changes from meditation training are linked to cellular health. From meditation training, that's fascinating if that's true. From meditation training, how could that be? Are linked to cellular health. Don't ask me for more information. No, I'm not. I'm just thinking <laughs> aloud. The last <laughs> one, the astronomers founding, have found evidence that volcanic activity may still be possible on the moon. Uh, sure. Sure, absolutely. Why not? I think it was established that many, many moons ago, huh, there was volcanic activity uh, raging on the moon. So why not? It's still possible. So it's between bad habits and uh, meditation. I'll... I think the bad habits one is the fiction. Okay, Steve. Neanderthals being more promiscuous than modern humans, you know. I'm not sure what the connection there is to the finger bones, but uh, it, it's possible that um, they're showing that there's you know more uh, genetic mixing going on, I guess. I could see how that could be true. Bad habits, you know, causing changes in children or grandchildren. They must be talking about some some epigenetic thing that was discovered. Again, I haven't heard anything about that, but if you know that, that that seems feasible, the psychological changes from meditation. You know, I don't buy it, but I'll say that there are often I see studies like that. That you know, looking at meditation, there's so many studies looking at meditation and all the the things that it does. I think this is exactly the kind of study that somebody would do. But I also think they're just looking at non-specific effects of relaxation and just looking at all the different things that happen when you relax, and then ascribing that to meditation. The four is the one I have the biggest problem with. You know, volcanic activity on the moon, you know, meaning like a volcano breaking through the crust of the moon. The, the moon, the moon's crust is, has cooled solid. The only way that would be possible would be after like a massive meteor strike that actually cracked open the moon's crust. But I don't know if you would qualify that, qualify that as volcanic activity. So... These are all a little weird, Jay. I, mean, I think you did a good job finding these, but I think I have the biggest problem with the uh, volcanic activity on the moon. I don't think that should be possible anymore. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah, for me, it was, it, I guess it's between the the idea that meditation is linked to cellular health and volcanic activity on the moon. Neither of those sounds particularly good to me. And uh, so I'm going to benefit from my position <laughs> And um, assume that that Steve knows what he's talking about with the meditation thing. Uh, I I agree that the the volcanic activity thing on the moon is a bit odd because I think it's got, I think it has a molten core, but that I don't think that there's any way that there would be volcanoes erupting. So I I think that that's the fiction as well. And Bob, <laughs> yeah, Jay, this is actually really good. Um... The, the fossil finger bones and the promiscuous Neanderthals, yeah, I could see the, the finger bones kind of being markers for some sort of genetic diversity that could lead you to that conclusion. Like Steve said, and the um, the bad habits and psychiatric disorder, 
I wasn't kind of leaning towards some epigenetic factors, Steve. I was thinking of more of a behavioral type thing, uh, but I could still kind of see that. And it's yeah, it's it's these other these last two that are that are getting me the positive psychological changes from meditation training are linked to cellular health. Just the phrasing of that sentence makes it suspect to me. So I'm kind of leaning towards that one. But this but this last one here though with the the moon. Volcanic activity what? on the moon? Come on, going with Steve though. I'd be kind of I'm kind of afraid to go with Steve. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Um, He's not very good. <laughs> you, Bob. But I'm a hundred percent against Jay so far. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know, Steve is a smart fellow, Bob. I'm not denying that, but I'm just I'm just I'm just looking at his record in science or fiction. That's all I'm thinking about. It's all that Bob judges people on. globally. That's all he cares about. Must What's your science you. or fiction number? Oh, you're <laughs> stupid. I'll jump on the bandwagon and say that the uh, volcanic activity on the moon is fiction. So, okay, I will take these in order since they're already in order. <laughs> so in we order. have the first one. Neanderthals were more promiscuous than modern human fossil finger bones suggest. And that one is science. The fossil finger bones of early human ancestors suggest that Neanderthals were more promiscuous and they're basing this on – they use the finger ratios from fossilized skeletal remains of early apes and extinct hominins as indicators of the levels of exposure species had to prenatal androgens. Steve, you know what that means? Well, androgens are male hormones basically. So this group of hormones is important in the development of masculine characteristics such as aggression and promiscuity. So – the thought is that the androgens, such as testosterone, affect finger length during development in the womb, and high levels of the hormones increase the length of the fourth finger in comparison to the second finger. So there you go. That's how they did it. So if I understand this correctly, they're saying because they, the finger length shows exposure to more testosterone, and then they're saying, therefore, they were more promiscuous because they had more testosterone. That's pretty much it. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. So, so item number two. Item number two is bad habits can cause your children and possibly grandchildren to end up with a psychiatric disorder. Now, I actually – I dumbed this one down a little bit because I thought that the actual real item as it was stated was you guys would all flock to pick it and I actually didn't want to do that because what it actually is, it says, a recent study suggests that genes marked by stress can make children and grandchildren mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So it is – Bob, you were right in in bringing up the epigenetic – Oh, that was me. Idea. Steve. Oh, sorry, Steve. You were right about that. So the here, the basic idea behind this one is that they did a cryptic epigenetic code. They added it to the DNA of mice, and uh, this test shows that for the first time that changes in gene activity can pass down three generations. And yeah. it, they they figure that's likely that it's the same mechanic um, that would work in humans. So real quick, epigenetics deals with the regulation of gene activity within a cell, which genes are switched on or off, as an example. Every cell in the body contains the same DNA, but epigenetic settings on cells in the bone and blood, for example, mean the tissue do very little jobs. And they do, sorry, they do very different jobs. So the epigenetic consequences of a huge range of environmental factors are under investigation from exposure to drugs, chemicals, and hormones, to the impact of poor maternal care and infancy and the likelihood that they are... are heritable as DNA. So far, most of the epigenetic research is focused on cancer because epigenetic marks unique to cancer cells and that may set them apart from a healthy tissue. The most compelling evidence that they found 
with the heritability of psychiatric illness comes from a recent study of male mice made depressed by exposure to stress and lack of maternal care during the first two weeks after birth. And they found that two generations of offspring born to these mice were also depressed and anxious, even though they were raised with the usual levels of maternal care and attention. Interesting. The good news about this study is that they may have found ways to treat or or prevent psychiatric disorders. This is the beginning of that, hopefully. So item uh, number three is that positive psychological changes from meditation training are linked to cellular health. Now this is... This is another one where you got you're a little nervous now because you don't know which one is true. Is it this one? Is it the moon one? You know, just you're right. Know. We're a little nervous. <laughs> so nervous. Please, Jay, tell us. Tell us. This one. Is, this one is science. Yay! Positive psychological changes from meditation training are linked to cellular health. So they did uh, a recent research shows that changes that occur during meditation training are associated with greater Telomerase, Steve? Yeah, telomerase, yeah. yeah. Telomerase activity. The study is the first to link positive well-being to higher telomerase, an enzyme important for the long-term health of cells in the body. So telomeres are sequences of DNA at the end of chromosomes that tend to get shorter every time the cells divide. So when the telomeres drop below a critical length, the cells can no longer divide properly and they eventually die. So telomerase is an enzyme that can rebuild and strengthen telomeres. Yeah. Other studies suggest that telomerase activity may be a link between psychological stress and physical health. See, I, I, this is exactly the same kind of crappy study that always gets presented as like there's something magical about meditation when in fact meditation is relaxation. Yeah, relaxation causes a reduction in stress hormones and there's a whole suite of things that happens in response to stress hormones. Super sweet. But it's just—it's a little deceptive to tie it specifically. Sometimes it's tied specifically to transcendental meditation, which is a scam. So I always find that a little bit annoying because it's again, and the bigger concept is that you're looking at very non-specific effects and and presenting it as if it has some specific connection to the intervention. In this case, meditation. The one thing that they said though that made me put it in here, which was the. Out of, of all the information about this study, they said that the telomerase activity was about one-third higher in the white blood cells of participants who had completed the retreat, the retreat, yeah. which is basically the, the uh, learning about meditation and everything, than the control group. But I agree with you, Steve. I think out of the three of these, this is the weakest one that, that probably isn't the most accurate. But what they never do is they never have just other forms of relaxation as a control. Yeah. And if you do that, I suspect that there's not going to be any difference between meditation and any kind of relaxation. Nice. So that means that the last one about the the uh, volcanic activity on the moon, I completely made that up. I did read an article uh, recently about the moon and about how the core, like Rebecca said, is still molten. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? I, you know, I guess at some point the moon was having uh, some significant volcanic activity and how cool would it be to actually see an eruption happen through a telescope and all that. But indeed, that this one was completely made up by me. Well, yeah, it's, the moon's gonna, too small, solidified too far down. By this in a month, point. we're going to read an article about how some astronomer thinks <laughs> volcanic activity. You know, the seas, the seas on Mars uh, were caused by uh, flood basalt volcanic activity, I believe. But I don't think there was any actual, uh, you know, mountainous volcanoes. It's more of just the crust opened up and and flooded the area with the with with the uh, with the lava, and then it just solidified to, to make the seas. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Maria of, you meant to say the moon, Bob. I think you said Mars. The Maria on the moon are basically the result, 
the result of volcanic eruptions. But those occurred, you know, three to three and a half billion years ago, nothing recently. I think the earliest age estimate by crater counting crater counting is 1.2 billion years ago. So no recent volcanic activity on the moon. So what this means is that Steve, Rebecca, and Bob got it right. Evan, unfortunately, got it wrong. But you all, you all had very good things to say about it. I would say that I was impressed with the information you brought to it. Good job, Jay. Well done, yeah, good Jay. Job. I fun. sniffed out that you manipulated that bad habits one pretty you good. You did. So that's, that's why I could kind of, was kind of sensing that that was the one. Uh-huh. Sadly, I'm not going to be able to, because of Australia, I won't be able to actually do another one of these probably until we get back. But I think I, I think I got the formula down now. I think I could beat you guys. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, that's a challenge. Big talk. Wow, Rebecca. Rebecca needs to go to bed, guys. Yeah, I do. Well, Jay, <laughs> give I, us a quote then. Oh. All right, I have a quote here. This uh, this quote was sent in by a man named Tim. No last name. He's from London. Thanks, Tim, for the quote. the uh, The author of the quote is Sir David Frederick Attenborough. Does anybody know who he is? David yeah, Attenborough. Yes. I know. David yeah. Attenborough. Attenborough. Hello. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> and and David said, the world is full of wonders, but they become more wonderful, no less wonderful, when science looks at them. Sir David Frederick Attenborough. <laughs> you know what else he said? He said, we have a T-Rex. Oh, wait. That's the wrong Attenborough. Yeah, that's wrong Jurassic Park. Sorry. <laughs> well, good job, Jay. Thanks for covering that this week. One quick announcement. One quick announcement. There are still tickets available for our live show in Vancouver, and I understand that we are going to have, in addition to George Hrob, we're going to have a special appearance by Fraser Kane from Astronomy Cast. Cool. I know, I know Fraser. Yeah, it's, it's turning into an actual party. I've never but met him. But if you're him. not in Vancouver that weekend, you should come to Skepticon and see me instead. That's right. In Missouri. I agree. If you're not. Right. But if you're closer to uh, Vancouver than Missouri, then you'll want to get one of those uh, few remaining tickets from CFI Vancouver, who are sponsoring the event. But if you're right in the middle, like in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming or something. Flip a coin. Yeah. But those are really your only two options for that weekend. That's right. That's the only two options. Well, thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 